Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It is Tuesday, March 2nd. I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette today, Iowa students leave school to protest LGBTQ proposals. This story is by Grace King. Linmar High School freshman Calum Peterson joined hundreds of students across the state Wednesday in protesting bills being considered in the Iowa legislature they say target the rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer youth. Calum, age 14, just started testosterone, a decision made under the care of a therapist and with the support of his parents. He struggles with gender dysphoria or discomfort because his gender is different from his sex at birth. Coming out helped improve his mental health and made him feel less suicidal, he said. Gender-affirming care, like starting testosterone, was the next step to making me feel like me, Calum said. Now he's worried about that option being taken away from him by Iowa Republican lawmakers. Bills being considered in the State House, Senate Study Bill 1197 and House Study Bill 214, would bar physicians from providing gender-affirming care to Iowans under age 18, even with parental consent. The bills prohibit puberty blockers and administering the testosterone or estrogen and gender-affirming surgeries. Calum was one of about 50 students at Linmar who gathered outside the high school Wednesday to learn more about the proposed bills that could affect their rights, joining dozens of other schools across Iowa, including Marion High School in Marion, Prairie High School in Cedar Rapids, and Iowa City High School in Iowa City, in a statewide protest organized by a youth-led group called Iowa WTF and Iowa Queer Alliance. The Linmar Community School District has been a target of Republican lawmakers, or excuse me, leaders, including former Vice President Mike Pence and Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, after adopting new policies last year to protect transgender students from discrimination. These policies make official the practices already established in the district and other districts in Iowa to follow federal and state law. The policies spell out inclusive practices for transgender students, including giving them access to restrooms, locker rooms, or changing areas that correspond with their chosen gender identity. Students in the seventh grade or above could request a gender support plan that calls for teachers and peers to address the students by a new name and new pronouns. The policy leaves it up to the students whether to notify parents. On Tuesday, Republican lawmakers in the House and the Senate advanced proposals, including House Study Bill 208 and Senate File 335, which would bar transgender students from using school restrooms for the gender with which they identify. New legislation introduced by Republican lawmakers also proposes an amendment to the Iowa Constitution that would ban same-sex marriages. Another bill would prohibit gender identity instruction through eighth grade. Iowa City Junior, or excuse me, Iowa City High School Junior, Puck Carlson, 16, recalls learning about different gender identities and sexual orientation in age-appropriate lessons in elementary school. Puck already knew knee, that's spelled N-E, a gender-neutral pronoun, 
was queer from an age from a young age and nears that's n i r s the possessive of me parents had always been supportive the lesson in school further helped puck come to terms with myself and my sexuality ni said normalizing different gender identities would make a lot of people feel safe and more comfortable and happier puck said adding ni is horrified by the bills aimed at lgbtq people especially children it's never going to stop queer people from existing puck said those kids will still grow up and be queer they just won't have any knowledge and that can only lead to suffering and hardship for the kids i know and for the kid i once was it makes me so sad puck hoped to communicate opposition to these bills by walking out of school with about 100 other students from iowa city high and southeast junior high school walking almost 2 miles to the pentacrest at the university of iowa to protest jules robinson age 16 a junior at prairie high school in cedar rapids said they their pronoun always knew they didn't fit a specific gender jules led about 30 students in walking out of prairie high it was a nice comforting pace space they said jules is not a legal name because it hurts me to hear that name sometimes they said being a girl just doesn't feel right for me i just am who i am jules's parents are supportive of them being non-binary a gender does, that is not male or female but some parents aren't they said i don't have to go through that myself but i have friends who do and it's so painful to go through them to see them go through it every single day Also on the front page, this story is by Trish Mahaffey. Arrest made in 2007, cold case murder. 42-year-old Cedar Rapids man was arrested Wednesday on a first-degree murder charge in a 2007 cold case. Curtis Paget is accused of fatally stabbing and beating Dennis Lee First, 64, who lived in Paget's southwest side apartment complex. First's death was investigated as a homicide but no arrests were made at the time. Cedar Rapids police said in a news release, investigators continued to work on the case evaluating new leads and evidence over the last 15 years. Linn County attorney Nick Maybank said this case is a testament to the commitment of the CRPD to victims and the community. This case demonstrates that their department does not give up on the pursuit of justice for victims and survivors even in cases that may fall out of the public eye. After the department's cold case unit reached out to Maybanks to review the case and after several months of follow-up investigation and a recent final consultation, Maybanks filed a first-degree murder charge for Paget. Police don't say what led to Paget's arrest. whether it was further dna testing or something else and the complaint doesn't provide that information according to a complaint cedar rapids police an office manager and a maintenance man responded may 11 2007 to hawthorne hills apartments 2249 c street southwest to conduct a welfare check on first they found first lying on his back on a pull out sofa bed in his apartment His face was covered in blood and he was dead. According to an autopsy, he died from multiple blunt force injuries including a gaping, cutting or stab wound that was more than 3 inches wide with ragged edges on the right side of his neck. 
He also had multiple large contusions to his face, forehead, and left ear, cuts above his upper lip, a broken nose, and brain hemorrhage, among other injuries, which showed he had been severely beaten, the complaint states. Robert Gross, the maintenance man who found first with others, told the Gazette in 2007 that after knocking on the door and no one answered, he went in. Paget, who was a known associate with First, admitted he was at the complex that night. A witness reported hearing the two of them loudly arguing the night before First was found dead, according to the complaint. And in abbreviating the article, uh, the, the article ends by saying Patchett will be formally charged today during an initial appearance in Lynn County District Court. Turning now to the Iowa Today page, Cedar Rapids Council pleased Westdale Mall has become major economic hub. This story by Marissa Payne. The city of Cedar Rapids is working to amend its agreement with the developer undertaking Westdale Mall's transformation to allow the developer to tap into a reserve fund created when loans associated with the project were restructured. In 2018, the City Council signed off on restructuring loans for the mall's redevelopment into a mix of shops, housing, dining, offices, and hotels. The $90 million transformation of the 1979-built mall began in 2013. Specifically, the developer secured a $21.5 million loan. That was used to pay out existing loans and retired a $5 million city bond. A reserve fund of $2.28 million was established from the loan proceeds. This fund provides payment of any debt shortfall payments above the semi-annual tax increment financing payments that service the loan. The fund amount represents the highest annual debt service payments for the loan. Under a term sheet outlining deal points the Council approved on Tuesday, City Economic Development Manager Caleb Mason said the proposal would adjust financial arrangement with a proposed schedule to reduce debt service reserve and surplus funds based on an incremental taxable value increase. As that incremental taxable value increases over time, essentially the city's risk decreases and it would allow the developer to have access to those debt reserve funds, Mason said. The reserve funds would be released in a process aligning with city assessments, which are sent by April 1st, to make adjustments. The reduction to the debt service reserves would be aligned with that schedule and in accordance with the lender's release of funds. The developer would have to use those reserve funds to pay either property tax or development-related expenses, Mason said. Each year, the development would, or excuse me, the developer would have to provide a statement detailing the previous year's construction activities to quantify what will come online, as well as anticipated construction for the current calendar year. The site's 2022 assessed value is $62 million an increase of $54.6 million over the pre-development value, Mason said. Currently under construction are Home 2 Suites by Hilton, Boulder Tap House, Take 5 Oil Change, and 11,000 square feet of mixed-tenant commercial space. The developer also has sold additional properties for development by others. Todd Nelson, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer for Fru Development Group, 
recently estimated the whole redevelopment will be complete within the next two to five years. Its completion depends on what offers come in on the remaining four lots. Councilmember Ashley Van Orney, <clears throat> who represents District 5, covered much of the southwest quadrant, including Westdale, said that the retail market has shifted significantly since the site's redevelopment began and the community needed to move beyond the original images proposed. Van Orney said she hoped to see reduced parking spaces but felt the residential development occurring on the site will help strengthen the Westdale Area Neighborhood Association and overall walkability. This is a major economic hub, Van Orney said. The success or failure of it is something that is weighed on a lot of people in these homes. Councilmember Dale Todd said this venture was initially risky but has been a success. It's been refreshing to see growth in that quadrant of town that at times we've been ridiculed for, but there are a lot of other communities where parcels of land like that are simply sitting empty with no future in terms of development, Todd said. The amended development agreement is expected to come to the council this month. And also on the Iowa Today page, new student housing project is coming to Iowa City. This story by Isabella Zaluska. Demolition has started to make way for a new student housing development along South Riverside Drive in Iowa City. The proposed six-story Riverfront West housing project is at the corner of South Riverside Drive and Myrtle Avenue on about four acres of land. It is across from Dairy Queen and Kelly's Auto and Power Sports. This project at 525 South Riverside Drive is just over a mile away from Kinnick Stadium, the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, and a handful of university dorms. Draft designs being reviewed by city staff describe the project as a new market rate student housing project. There are 291 units proposed with 648 beds along with a parking garage and associated site developments. The building will be 196,466 square feet. A total of 507 parking spaces are proposed in the draft plan, along with 201 bike parking spaces. Once the various administrative reviews are approved by city staff, the development team can begin construction. Scannell Properties, a real estate development company with headquarters in Indianapolis, is working with local architecture firm Shive Hattery and Des Moines-based DCI Group. Scannell Properties told the Gazette they are not able to discuss the project. Shive Hattery and DCI Group did not respond to requests for comment. The development team applied for 11 demolition permits for vacant buildings on the land, including apartment complexes and single-family homes, according to city records. The city council in December of 2020 unanimously approved rezoning the nearly four acres of land to make way for a proposed project from the developers in the Riverfront Crossings District from the team. This story, called Capital Notebook, is by the Gazette Lee Des Moines Bureau. Iowa lawmakers propose accelerated income tax cuts. Iowa already is on a path to reduce the state income tax rate to 3.9% by 2026. That phased process would accelerate and the rate would be lowered to 2.5% by 2028, 
under legislation advanced Wednesday by state lawmakers. The proposal comes just a year after Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law a gradual reduction in working Iowans' state income taxes, which started this year. Under that new law, all Iowa income taxpayers will have a 3.9% income tax rate in 2026. Iowa Senator Dan Dawson, Republican Council Bluffs, on Wednesday unveiled his proposal to speed up that process and take the income tax rate even lower. Under his bill, Senate Study Bill 1126, Iowa would have a 4% state income tax rate in 2025, 3.55% in 2026, 2.95% in 2027, and 2.5% in 2028. From there, the bill says Iowa's income tax rate should be continually reduced until it is eliminated. We can't be complacent. We must continue to ensure we have a competitive tax code here in this state, Dawson said Wednesday during a subcommittee hearing on the proposal. The current law is projected to eventually lead to a $1.8 billion reduction in state income tax collections, which means a reduction to state revenues in that same amount. That's roughly a quarter of Iowa's annual general fund state spending. Currently, the state income tax accounts for just less than half of Iowa's general fund budget. Dawson said he's confident that if the state phased out the income tax, it still would have enough revenue to fund state government and all its programs and services. Senator Herman Quim. Kornbach, Democrat Ames, who was on the panel, was much less confident that state government will be able to function properly if Dawson's bill becomes law. He said if the bill is enacted, eventually the state would have to make cuts to public education, public safety, and other services. This bill, the only thing I can call it, is fiscal fentanyl. All it's going to do is it's going to kill Iowa faster, Kornbach said. Dawson and Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig, supported advancing the bill to the full Senate Committee on Tax Policy. School administrators at some of Iowa's largest school districts would be required to teach a semester-long class under a bill advanced by a three-member House Education Subcommittee. The bill provides that school districts containing two or more high schools, three or more middle schools, or four or more elementary schools shall require certain administrators, including school superintendents and building principals, to provide semester-long classroom instruction to students at least once every three years. Bill sponsor Representative Robert Henderson, a Republican from Sioux City, said the intent is to get administrators more acquainted with what's happening in the classrooms. Representative Molly Buck, a Democrat from Ankeny, declined to sign off on the bill, echoing concerns from education groups representing school administrators, teachers, school boards, and rural school advocates, all of whom are registered against the bill. No group is registered in support of the legislation, according to state lobbying records. Lobbyists for education groups say the bill is logistically problematic and that there are better ways to get administrators in the classroom through observations and participating alongside teachers in curriculum training and professional development. Several noted school administrators in Iowa already serve in many roles throughout their district, including teaching classes when a substitute is unavailable, driving a school bus, 
serving lunch and coaching. House File 454 is now eligible for consideration by the full committee. Non-budget and non-tax policy bills must pass out a full committee by a Friday funnel deadline to be considered yet this session. And this last category in Capital Notebook is titled Loosened Gun Regulations. Schools, college campuses, businesses, casinos, and corrections facilities would be barred from prohibiting guns in vehicles in their parking lots under legislation advanced by Republican lawmakers. Senate Study Bill 1168 is similar to a bill that has been moving in the House. The Senate version was approved by Republicans on a three-member subcommittee and is now eligible for consideration by the full Senate Judiciary Committee. Turning now to the Insight page, Reforms Deserve a Chance to Work is the title of today's guest editorial, and that was previously printed in the Bloomberg Opinion. After years of chaos at the U.S. southern border, the government says illegal crossings have fallen by more than 40% in recent months. These figures suggest border policies recently introduced by President Joe Biden's administration are starting to deliver results. It's regrettable politicians in both parties are trying to undermine the progress. Since late last year, the administration has employed a carrot-and-stick strategy to contain the surge of migrants attempting to enter the country. It launched a program for migrants from Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Haiti, allowing as many as 30,000 a month to apply for temporary visas before reaching the border. Under the program, known as Humanitarian Parole, applicants who have a sponsor, pass background checks, and meet other requirements can work in the U.S. for two years while their asylum claims are adjudicated. Border crossings, who, or excuse me, border crossers who attempt to circumvent the process are expelled to Mexico. Between December and January, Customs and Border Protection encounters between ports of entry dropped from 221,675 to 128,410, the lowest figure in two years, with evidence of continued declines in February. Those numbers may well fall even further due to a new rule announced last week that it denies migrants the ability to request asylum without first applying in a country they pass through on the way to the U.S., Set to take effect in May, the rule adds to Title 42, the policy used by the government to turn away some asylum seekers by imposing criminal penalties for illegal re-entry once initial admission has been denied. The administration deserves credit for taking steps to correct past failures, yet 20 GOP attorneys general, including from border states most affected, have filed suit to try to overturn the administration's parole plan, claiming it violates limits on executive authority. Several Senate Democrats, meanwhile, have denounced the proposed third-country asylum transit rule. America's immigration system requires comprehensive reform to fill labor shortages and provide a fair, efficient asylum process for migrants genuinely fleeing persecution. Building public support, or excuse me, building public support for such policies, however, is impossible without more aggressive measures to deter unlawful entry. At the same time, conservatives should recognize that prudent efforts to increase legal immigration 
can help ease pressure on the border and stem the illegal flow. The underlying issues driving the migration crisis won't be solved overnight, but the administration's new approach is a step toward a more rational, orderly system. And again, that's a reprint from Bloomberg Opinion. 24-Hour Dorman today is titled, A Bipartisan Pitch for Free Lunch. As we wait to see which hyperpartisan bills clear a legislative funnel deadline, it's notable that bipartisanship isn't completely dead under the golden dome of wisdom. It pops up occasionally, like a spring flower sprouting through the muck of March. Sure, it may get run over by a Republican bulldozer, but let's mark its fleeting appearance. Representative Sammy Sheets, a Democrat from Cedar Rapids, filed a bill to expand the number of kids in Iowa who get free school lunch and breakfast. Under current law, kids from families who, with incomes up to 130% of poverty, roughly $35,000 annually for a family of four, receive free school meals. And families with an income up to 185%, about $65,000, receive reduced meal prices. Under Sheets's bill, all kids in families earning incomes up to 185% of poverty would get free meals. The change would affect public school students and kids attending private or charter schools that participate in federal lunch and breakfast programs. It would cost $1.1 million to extend free meals to 23,000 families. Democrats have long supported expanding the availability of free meals, so Sheets's bill isn't a surprising development. What is remarkable is the bill has 20 Republican co-sponsors. I found a lot of the members to be cooperative and willing to sign on. Sheets, who is serving his first term, told me this week, I'm willing to work with anyone in the chamber to make working people's lives better. The significance of 20 GOP backers is simple math. Add those supporters to 36 House Democrats and you have 56 votes. That's easily enough for passage. But unfortunately, this is where political maneuvering comes in. It's unlikely House Republican leadership will bring a bill to the floor that doesn't have the support of a majority of Republicans. Sure, it has 20 Republican backers, but the other 44 House Republicans could find themselves voting against feeding kids. Leaders don't like that, let that sort of thing happen. But who is against feeding more kids? Sheets said among the objections he heard from the Republicans are that lunches should be parents' responsibility and the bill would lead to the unchecked growth of state government. This from the same folks who passed legislation spending nearly a billion dollars in public funds over the next four years to create education savings accounts for families sending their kids to private schools. I think this is a no-brainer for $1.1 million, Sheets said. In fact, every kid should get free meals at school. State Senator Janice Weiner, a Democrat from Iowa City, has filed a bill in the Senate to do just that. But it's unlikely to receive consideration. The fate of Sheets' bill is in limbo. No action has been taken, despite its bipartisan support. It may die in this week's funnel deadline or be resurrected as an appropriations bill. Surely the same legislators who are paid for daily expenses, including meals, during the legislative session and are invited to special interest receptions with free eats, 
could support feeding kids. It's a no-brainer, but you do need to have a heart. That is 24-hour doorman. One community letter today, Warm Memories from Snowstorm of 1975. I always call my son Chad on his birthday with the same message. His mom, Robin, was at the hospital the night before. I'd been home, awakened that night by a phone call from my mother-in-law. Steve, have you looked out the window? About 14 inches of snow fell, a blizzard. No way I could get anywhere. Businesses and factories were shut down. I was trying to call a cab or anyone while listening to WMT radio about the storm, and they offered emergency rides by the local police. So I called the station, and minutes later an officer knocked at my door. Off we went, listening to the noise of the chains on his tires. We headed down Center Point Road, but had to stop at the Green Gable Bar for the officer to check out a silent alarm while I waited in the car. The snow had set off the alarm. Off we were again. We made it to Mercy Hospital, and I went in to greet my newly born handsome little boy. Robin died of cancer this year, just a few days before her birthday. Over the years, I wished I would have remembered the kind officer's name. He was my hero. Ironically, Robin and I rented a home on 42nd Street Northeast from Leo McNamara, owner of the Green Gable at the time. I'm getting older. This may be the last time I will be able to make the phone call. And that's signed today by Stephen Klein of Tiffin, formerly of Cedar Rapids. You're listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Thursday, March 2nd, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we turn to today's obituaries. Beginning with the short notices, first from Coralville, Carolyn L. Calderon, age 76, died Thursday, February 23. Iowa Cremation is in charge. From Lansing, Catherine M. Conway, 75, died Monday, February 27, Thornburg Grau Funeral Home, Lansing. In Mechanicsville, Dwayne A. Betcher, 71, died Wednesday, March 1st. Chapman Funeral Home of Clarence is in charge. And from Riverside, J. Saunders, age 70, died Friday, February 24. Celebration of Life or excuse me, Celebrate Life of Iowa, North Liberty, is in charge of arrangements. Turning now to the regular notices, first from Cedar Rapids. K. Bruce Clinton, 64, passed away Monday, February 27. A gathering to visit with K.'s family and friends will be held from 2 to 4 p.m. Saturday at Papich Cuba Funeral Home East, 1228 2nd Street Southeast in Cedar Rapids. From Cedar Rapids, Melba E. Davison, 97, passed away Tuesday, February 28. A funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, March 4, at Bethany Lutheran, 2202 Forest Drive Southeast, Cedar Rapids, with a visitation one hour prior. Burial will be at Linwood Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids is assisting the family. Also from Cedar Rapids, Susan A. Regan, 82, passed away at the Oldorf Hospice House in Hiawatha, Monday, February 27, surrounded by her loving friends. A memorial visitation will be held from 5 to 7, Tuesday, March 7, 
at the Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. From Cedar Rapids, Richard E. Heverlow, 84, passed away Monday, February 27, at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House in Hiawatha. Visitation will be from 3 to 6, Sunday, March 5, at the Cedar Memorial Westside Chapel, with a vigil service beginning at 3 p.m. Funeral Mass will be at 10 a.m. Monday, March 6th at St. Jude Catholic Church, officiated by Father Nick March. The family will greet friends one hour prior to the service at the church. Burial will follow at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery with military honors. Also in Cedar Rapids, Wilbur Lowell Parman, age 87, passed away Tuesday, February 28th at Mercy Medical Center. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, March 4, at First Baptist Church, 1260 29th Street, Marion. The family will greet friends one hour prior to the service at the church. Burial to follow at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. From Vinton, Dora Jean Gordon, age 98, passed away peacefully Wednesday, March 1st, at ABCM Rehabilitation in Independence. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, March 4, at Trinity Lutheran Church in Vinton, with the Reverend Stephen Preuss officiating. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday at Phillips Family Center in Vinton. Burial will be held at Evergreen Cemetery. From Cedar Rapids, Jeffrey J. Mills, age 65, formerly of Mason City, passed away Saturday, February 25, at the Taylor House Hospice in Des Moines. A service to celebrate his life will be held at 10.15 a.m. Saturday, March 4, at Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel, 126 3rd Street Northeast in Mason City. He will be buried at Elmwood St. Joseph Cemetery in Mason City. Following the burial, the celebration of his life will continue. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7.30 p.m. In Cedar Rapids, Eldora Rose Seegers, age 95, of Marion, Iowa, passed away March 1st at Methwick Care Facility due to colon cancer. Per her wishes, she has been cremated. A private burial will take place for the family to reunite Eldora with Merv. From Tipton, Alberta M. Warren, age 94, passed away Saturday, February 25, Cedar Manor in Tipton. No services will be held at the present time. Stuart Baxter, Funeral and Memorial Services of Mount Vernon, is caring for Alberta's family. And our final obituary from East Meadow, New York, Julan Young Sawyers passed away peacefully Thursday, February 23, at Mercy Hospital in Rockville Center, New York, surrounded by her family. She was 72 years old. She experienced a cardiac arrest the previous Friday night as she slept next to her loving husband of 49 years, John Ross Sawyers. On Thursday, per her desire, she was able to donate both kidneys to individuals in desperate need of transplants. Her remains will continue to replenish the earth following a gentle transformation into life-giving soil. Julie's family respectfully requests donations be made in her name to the wonderful Live On New York, who facilitated her organ donation. 
Turning now to the sports page, top-ranked Kennedy back in the state tournament. This story by Jeff Johnson. Routine might not be the best word to describe Cedar Rapids Kennedy's Class 4A sub-state final boys basketball game Tuesday night at West High against North Scott. Boring was a negative connotation to it, so that's not it. So let's try methodical. The way the top-ranked Cougars went about securing a 76-48 to win and a second consecutive berth at the state tournament that went along with it was rather methodical, kind of mundane. Not an explosive start, but a lead. A little more of a lead as the game continued, then a bit more of a spread, a bit more, a bit more. No huge runs or tons of fast break points off turnovers. Just something here, something there. A lot of defense everywhere. Yeah, it kind of felt like a business trip today a little bit, said Kennedy coach John McCowan. Things weren't easy. They're good physical on our drive, on your drives, so you've got to play with good balance and good pace. Offensively, they play at a different pace. They slow it down. Kind of methodical. The game wasn't up and down. Possessions mean more in sub-state games. That Kennedy can win a grinder like this and handily is a boon going into next week. The Cougars quite probably will get another one in a Wednesday afternoon quarterfinal against Pleasant Valley, like North Scott, a Mississippi Athletic Conference member. PV actually won the MAC this season. Some games we know we'll just have to grind out, said Kennedy guard Colby Dolphin. They don't like to play fast, and we knew that coming in. We just had to see whose tempo was going to take over the game, and eventually ours took over. Cyrus Courtney led Kennedy with 17 points and 9 rebounds. Dolphin had 16 points. Micah Schlack, 10, and Trey McCowan, the coach's son, 10 off the bench. Kennedy is the only Mississippi Valley Conference representative at State 2. Waterloo West, Cedar Falls, and Dubuque all lost their sub-state finals on Tuesday. Here's another look at the area sub-state finals. Number 6, Newton, 60, Solon, 46, and that's in Class 3A. And in Class 4A, Ames, 67 over Linmar, 49. March 8 is the Class 4A quarterfinals for boys. Number 1, Cedar Rapids Kennedy plays Pleasant Valley. Number 4, West Des Moines Valley plays number 6, Norwalk. Number two, Waukee plays Ames, and number three, Waukee Northwest plays number 10, Ankeny Centennial. Semifinals are March 9, and the finals are March 10. In Class 3A, number one, Bondurant Farrar plays Algona. Number six, Newton faces off against number seven, North Polk. Number four, Cedar Rapids Xavier plays Des Moines Hoover. And number five, Marion plays number 10, Sioux City Helan. Those finals again, March 9 and 10. In Class 2A for the quarterfinals, on Monday, number one, Central Lion plays Des Moines Christian. Number, excuse me, Pella Christian then plays MFL Marmac. Number two, Roland Story plays Carol Kemper. And number five, Western Christian plays Monticello. The quarterfinals in Class 1A find number one, Grandview Christian versus New London. Number four, West Harrison plays number six, Dunkerton. Number two, North Lynn plays number nine, Madrid. 
And number three, Gladbrook Rhinebeck faces off against number seven, Remsen St. Mary's. In the girls semifinals, number, excuse me, class 3A, number four, Benton Community faces number 10, Vinton Shellsburg. Turning now to the hoopla section, Hancher adding Broadway series in 2023-24. Theater fans will find their ticket to Broadway with a subscription series added to the lineup for Hancher Auditorium's next season. The package, which will be announced April 12, will include four hit Broadway shows at a discounted price. And a new festival, Infinite Dream, will debut October 11. The multidisciplinary event will feature the talents of visiting international artists as well as University of Iowa students, faculty, and staff. Initial details will be announced in June. Hancher has always taken great pride in offering an eclectic array of artists and performances, and we're thrilled to add both a full Broadway subscription series and a multidisciplinary festival to our range of events, said Andre Perry, Hancher's executive director. The Broadway subscription series will bring a dedicated season of touring, musicals, and plays to our community, while the festival will reflect the University of Iowa's legacy as a leading campus for storytelling across the arts. Hancher will announce its full 2023-24 season of events in July. The next season will bolster Hancher's historical strengths across disciplines and styles while pursuing new threads for watching and listening, teaching and learning as we vault forward into a new era for the organization, said Aaron Greenwald, Hancher's program and engagement directors. Annual donors at the $120 level and above can participate in donor presales. For the Broadway subscription series, the donor period will run from April 17 to 28. For the full season, the donor period will run from July 17 to 28. For more information, you can uh, go to, online to hancher.uiowa.edu slash become Hancher donor. And the Hamburg Inn reopens in Iowa City. Hamburg Inn number two is back in business after a brief closure earlier this year. The iconic Iowa City Diner quietly reopened February 22nd. The restaurant closed January 8th with initial plans to reopen by February 14. With a small staff, the restaurant at 214 North Lynn Street temporarily will operate on limited hours, 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. Monday through Thursday, and 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. Friday through Sunday. Announcement of the initial closure was made by local management late last year after they said they were unable to contact the restaurant's owner for substantial building maintenance and repairs in the older structure. Some staff members also claimed they had not received their paychecks for the end of December. An attorney for the owner subsequently disputed the staff's claims and announced the hiring of a new manager. The attorney also said the restaurant would remain open with limited hours while undergoing repairs, although the restaurant still closed for most of January and February. And Shawnee Cakes moving to a new location. Several months after announcing plans for a new location, Shawnee Cakes Specialty Treats is finally moving. The bakery, known for its sweet treats inside Nubo City Market, 
will hold a grand opening at its new location inside Collins Community Credit Union, 1800 First Avenue Northeast, on March 13, according to a Nubo City Market announcement. At the new site, owner LaShawn Smith will expand into breakfast and lunch with desserts and catering options. Shawnee Cakes started in 2010 in Smith's home kitchen, taking specialty orders and selling goods at pop-up shops at Nubo before moving into the market at 1100 3rd Street Southeast. After making a mark with her toffee butter cookies and lemon pound cake, the black-owned business quickly grew and got a shout-out from Stephen Colbert on his TV late-night talk show in May of 2021, leading to shout-outs from other celebrities, including Gail King. And a new baking contest is planned for June. Sandrine Wallace, a local French baker known for her macarons, is starting a new baking contest this summer at Nubo City Market. The first Cedar Rapids and French Pastry by Sandrine Bake Off Show is accepting applications for its debut June 9 to 10, with six sessions of three and a half hours each in the culinary kitchen at Nubo Market. Each session will feature five bakers for a total of 30 non-professional bakers vying to create the best stunning summer cake. Bakers must be at least 18 years old and can compete alone or in a team. Judges will award prizes ranging from $50 to $300 at 6 p.m. on June 10. Slices of the cakes will be available for sale after winners are announced. Entry fee is $50. Most ingredients and equipment will be provided. To apply, contact Sandrine Wallace at 319-350-8962. Also in the food category, Beefing Up Nubo Italian Style is the title of this column by Elijah Decius. A trek one local restaurant owner makes to Chicago every few weeks has produced a new journey with his latest venture, Capo Italian Beef. Eli Herica, owner of Pita's in Hiawatha and Nubo City Market, started making the trips to Chicago for his own restaurants when he opened his first location in 2009. Most of his supplies for Mediterranean food with a Lebanese specialization are sourced there, but the thing he eats every time he stops in Illinois is an Italian beef sandwich or Chicago dog from local restaurants like Luke's or Portillo's. So when a new spot opened up in Nubo City Market, the most obvious choice was an easy one for the entrepreneur. With a menu of fewer than 10 items at Capo Italian Beef, you can try his favorites in hot dog, sandwich, and rice bowl iterations with Italian beef or sausage. Sandwiches are offered soaked in a seasoning-packed au jus or with au jus on the side, a blend of flavors he says makes his sandwiches stand out from the local competition. The proprietary seasoning blend includes oregano, basil, seasoned salt, garlic powder, and five other ingredients that offer a little kick. Sandwiches are loaded with a variety of peppers, sliced onion, sweet peppers or jalapeno, or a choice of cheddar, provolone, or cheese sauce. Oven-roasted beef is shaved by hand after being cooked in small batches. An adaptation Herica started making in June 
that has improved his offerings. Yaju is the key for it, Harika said. That's where we add most of the seasoning. The shop's main Italian beef sandwich and the Chicago dog are, so far, the more popular sellers since Capo opened in June. Although the Lebanese man has never run an Italian beef restaurant before, he's learned a lot about authentic preparation through observation. When I go down and eat it, I see how they slice it, he said. I just ask questions. Herica, who has lived in Iowa since 2002, moved to Cedar Rapids to attend school after visiting his aunt, whose family owns Olive Tree Family Restaurant in Cedar Rapids. Growing up in a family that has run food businesses before, it was a natural progression for him to eventually open up Pita Z in Hiawatha. I, it was kind of the thing to do, he said, of the restaurant. It was a new opportunity. There, he had to overcome a lack of local familiarity with his food by handing out a lot of samples for his Lebanese and Greek-adjacent food. Two restaurants later, he runs his latest franchise with an eye on an eventual food truck and standalone location for Capo. He also hopes to focus on strengthening the wholesale side of his business, which sells pita chips, hummus, and baba ganache to area high bee stores. Dear Abby column today is titled, Sister-in-law miffed when she's left out of wedding. Dear Abby, my brother-in-law and his fiancée, Shauna, that's in quotes, have been dating for five years. They have a beautiful son and have a date set for their wedding. I have been with my husband for four years and married for about a year. We did not have a grand wedding celebration, just a simple city hall ceremony accompanied by a dinner with immediate family. However, Shauna is having the opposite. She has invited my husband to be part of the wedding, but not me. I'm very disappointed because I thought we got along rather well and I considered us friends. Aren't the brother and sister-in-law supposed to walk down the aisle together in a wedding ceremony? That's how I have seen other couples do it. After all, I've been part of the family long enough. Signed, what do you think? Overthinking in New York. And the reply, dear overthinking, your husband will walk down the aisle to his brother because he is part of the wedding party. No rule of etiquette decrees that because you are a sister-in-law, you must be part of the ceremony. If you had a simple wedding for financial reasons, you can always renew your vows in a grand fashion. Please don't blame your soon-to-be sister-in-law for not making you a bridesmaid. Ask her if there's any task you could perform, a reading perhaps, to be involved and useful. Finishing up with Beyond the Weather by meteorologist Joe Winters, March has arrived and with it we can start to get some milder conditions. This makes it much nicer when trying to take a look at the nighttime sky beyond the weather. Venus, Jupiter, Mars, and Mercury are the planets to target during the month of March. Mars takes on its reddish glow being found from sunset through midnight. Mercury can be seen, but not until the end of the month. Look for it close to Jupiter on March 27 in the evening sky. We are looking at a high of 42 today and a low of 29. Our normal high for today is 39 and the normal low is 21. A record high of 73 degrees was set on this date in 1923. 
The record low of 13 below zero was set in 1912. Moon phase is a waxing gibbous with moon rise at 1.08 p.m. and moon set at 5.08 a.m. Sunset tonight is at 5.59 p.m. and sunrise tomorrow at 6.38 a.m., giving us 11 hours and 20 minutes of daylight. That does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Thursday, March 2nd. I'm your reader, Kathleen. You can access a copy of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening, and have a great, safe day. People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active young and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest, but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. 
The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK. When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.